Welcome everyone. I have a few updates before we begin. Thanks to the support of Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobook selections, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I often use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me whatsoever. Every recommendation is either a book I personally read or listened to through Audible and I thoroughly enjoyed it. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and regardless if you decide to continue your membership with Audible or not, this book is yours to keep forever. It's a pretty good deal, so visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Stay tuned after the show where I will give you my audiobook recommendation. My second announcement is Patreon. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. I have many plans for this podcast for 2021, including making YouTube videos about Marine Corps battles, conducting more interviews with Marines, and even visiting some of these battle sites we discussed on the podcast and creating virtual tours of the battlefield. We also have an event coming up in February, honoring the 76th anniversary of Iwo Jima. Details are currently on Patreon, and I'll post this on social media as we get closer. But holy crap, if there is one historical monument to support, this is it. This monument was built for Iwo Jima survivors by Iwo Jima survivors. Visit patreon.com slash marine history to look at our Patreon page. I'll include a link in the podcast description as well. Thanks for your time, and now on to the show. Welcome to episode 54 of History of the Marine Corps. The First Creek and Seminole Wars Last week's episode continued to cover the relationship between the United States and Native American tribes after the American Revolution. We discussed a few skirmishes between local tribes and Marines, and we ended with the introduction to the First Creek and Seminole Wars. This episode digs into the first wars between the United States and the Southern tribes. This was a violent time between the two nations. We cover a few massacres, unfair treaties by the United States, and events leading to Archibald Henderson and the Marines' eventual involvement. Thanks for listening. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Tecumseh met his untimely death during the Battle of the Thames. But before he died, he made a great effort in uniting tribes in many parts of North America. One of his most successful trips was to the south. Tecumseh lived in the Great Lakes region, and making a voyage to the south was a journey in itself. There was no communication, and the chief had to make the long, dangerous journey on foot. But Tecumseh was more than just a warrior. 
He was a leader, and he wanted to create a confederacy that would challenge the United States. Tecumseh understood that the secret to the United States' strength was in their name. The states were united. This union created a force that could fight in multiple areas and had the support from a central authority. Tecumseh referred to the coalition of states as, quote, joining all their campfires, unquote, and he understood the westward advancement of new settlers was inevitable. Tribes were weak on their own, but combining forces could give Native Americans a chance to stop settlers from advancing on their land. This strategy isn't a new thought. The power of allies has been proven for thousands of years before Europeans set foot in North America. Tecumseh understood the value of allies, and his goal was to, quote, build a dam against a stream, unquote. He wanted to build an alliance with all tribes and headed south to fulfill his mission. A couple of years before he died, he traveled to the Georgia-Alabama region to speak with the local tribes. The Creek were motivated by Tecumseh's ideas, and that motivation turned many into supporters for his cause. Tecumseh would play a key role in starting the first Creek Indian War. The Creek were a Muscogean-speaking tribe and lived in the Georgia-Alabama region. Before the American Revolution, they sided with the British. However, once the British lost the war, their tune changed, and the Creek pledged loyalty to the United States. In return, the U.S. signed the Treaty of 1790 that promised to forbid settlements on Creek territory. But soon, the Creeks saw new settlements pop up throughout their land. On June 16, 1802, both parties signed the Treaty of Fort Wilkinson, which significantly reduced the Creek Nation's land within Georgia. But as I mentioned multiple times throughout this podcast, things aren't always so black and white. Of course, settling in Creek territory benefited the United States, but initially, it benefited the Creeks as well. It all started with the road. Trade frequently opened opportunities between two nations, which wasn't different between the U.S. and the Creeks. The head chiefs understood a road through the heart of their nation would provide opportunities to trade with the outside world, which would, in turn, create more profit for the tribes. The chiefs gave their permission to build a road, and soon, trade with the Creek Nation flourished. But this decision had unattended consequences. The Creek people were divided on allowing settlers access into their land, which caused the nation to split. On one side of the aisle, people thought this road would open countless opportunities for the Creeks. The other side was upset that the United States created a path for settlers to use for their westward expansion and to continue taking more land from Native Americans. They thought, quote, that they would soon be walled up between white settlements on every side, unquote. They believed the chiefs had betrayed the nation by allowing this road and they saw this as a broken promise by the United States. But the threat to the Creek way of life didn't solely stem from the U.S. There were multiple Spanish settlements in that area and they felt the land occupied by the Creeks belonged to Spain. Spaniards were upset at the U.S. for settling near the Creeks, and they covertly worked with the British promising to deliver weapons and ammunition to the Creeks if a war should break out with the United States. 
the thought of the U.S. breaking their promise gave Tecumseh power with the southern tribes. He himself experienced broken promises from the United States, and he was able to sympathize with them. The U.S. provided the Creek Nation with farm equipment, livestock, spinning wheels, and looms. The thought was to teach Native Americans to live on smaller portions of land and eliminate the need for enormous territory used as hunting grounds. Tecumseh was naturally against this, as it changed the Native American way of life. He believed that it degraded them and resulted in Native Americans being turned into slaves. Tecumseh warned the Creeks that, quote, the whites would take the greater part of their country, cut down its forest, and turn them into cornfields, build towns, and make the rivers muddy with their washings of their furrows. And then when they were strong enough, would reduce them to slavery like that of the Negroes, unquote. Despite Tecumseh's motives to unite the tribes, his philosophy separated the two nations further. The side that supported the United States was the Lower Creeks, also known as the White Sticks. They were farmers and benefited from the new way of life. The Upper Creeks, also known as Red Sticks, were against changing their tradition. The Creek War should have been a civil war amongst the Creek Nation. However, that all changed with the Red Sticks' decision to attack settlers. On May 23, 1812, William Law and his family traveled along the Federal Road built through the center of the Creek Nation. On their trip from Georgia to Mississippi, four Red Sticks attacked and murdered the family. In January 1813, seven families were murdered near the Ohio River by Red Sticks. This massacre started the escalation between the two Creek factions. The United States ordered the Creek Nation to track down and punish those responsible for the massacre. The instigator was executed for the crime. However, the Red Sticks decided to avenge his death and attack the White Sticks and local settlers. The Red Sticks took up arms with the British, while the White Sticks sided with the United States. Tecumseh's connection with the Creeks established a relationship with the chief of the Red Sticks, Red Eagle. Red Eagle was a phenomenal warrior and a brilliant strategist. In August 1813, he would lead an attack against Fort Mims. Early in the month, 533 men, women, and children sought protection in Fort Mims because they feared Native American retaliation. On August 30th, Red Eagle and an army of 1,000 Red Stick warriors attacked the fort and killed most of them. The numbers change depending on who you ask, but it's between 350 to over 500 deaths. This attack was the last straw for the United States, and the country acted against the Creek Nation. General Andrew Jackson was authorized to establish a militia force to stop the Creek War. On October 12th, Tennessee, Georgia, and Louisiana launched an attack on the Red Sticks and successfully defeated them. In November, General Jackson won two battles against Red Eagle and his Red Sticks. In response to the tenacity of Red Eagle, Jackson gave a simple but complimentary statement, quote, he is fit to command armies, unquote. Jackson continued to hunt down Red Sticks throughout the winter. His army grew and included support from the U.S. Army, the Cherokee, and White Stick Volunteers. In March 1814, 
Andrew Jackson dealt the Red Sticks killing blow at Horseshoe Bend on the Tallapoosa River. Jackson had a force of 3,300. The Red Sticks would suffer 800 dead, while Jackson only had 66, with 184 wounded. Historian Douglas Barber stated, quote, American retaliation was swift and unrelenting, and less than a year later the Creeks were a subject people, decimated by war and famine, with thousands reduced to beggary, unquote. After Jackson defeated the Red Sticks, he demanded that the Creeks, including the White Sticks, give up a large portion of their land to Georgia and Alabama. They signed the Treaty of Fort Jackson on August 9, 1814, which forced the Creek to, quote, seed land equivalent in value to the expenses incurred by the United States in carrying on the war, unquote. Jackson estimated that this equated to 23 million acres, more than half of the Creek territory. The chiefs who were loyal to the United States were able to keep a square mile of their land and pass it down to their heirs. But if that deal wasn't bad enough, there was a stipulation that said if they did not occupy that land, the U.S. could take it back. The United States also kept the rights to build additional roads, place trading posts along the route, and build military installation on Creek property. Sadly, the White Sticks were the ones who signed the treaty, and they were punished for the acts of their hostile counterparts. The Red Sticks never signed the treaty and would continue to fight with British support. Just to the south of this nation stood Florida, and the dominant Native American nation in that area were the Seminoles. The Seminoles haven't always lived in Florida. Originally, the Calusa inhabited southern Florida. Tamukua-speaking tribes lived in the middle, and Appalachians resided in the Panhandle. However, after the Spanish landed in North America, they began to wipe out the residing tribes. When Spain signed the First Treaty of Paris in 1763, releasing control of Florida after the Seven-Year War to Great Britain, almost all the original Native Americans were extinct. The few who remained moved to Cuba. As territory started to open, Native Americans from the Creek Confederacy migrated south to Florida. These Native Americans turned into the Seminoles, a name translated into runaways, to separate from the Creek Confederacy. The Creek and the Seminoles shared many of the same customs and cultures. They also spoke the Muscogean dialect. When the United States forced the Treaty of Fort Jackson on the Creek Nation, many of the Red Sticks fled south and joined the Seminoles. They didn't want the farmer lifestyle and they certainly didn't want to be loyal to the United States, now that most of their land was gone. The Seminoles lived a relatively peaceful life for a few years under British control, but their once peaceful lifestyle started to change after the American Revolution. Spain regained control after the war, but they did not have the resources to control the territory. Americans and Seminoles would constantly fight over runaway slaves, who sought protection in the Seminole Territory, there would also be spats on the rightful possession of cattle. During the War of 1812, the United States, Spain, and Great Britain all used Native Americans as their pawns. The British were actively recruiting Native Americans for their military, 
Spain encouraged Native Americans to attack United States tribes, and the U.S. would take large armies and retaliate against the attack, sometimes taking their territory in their process. The relationship between Native American tribes and the United States started to decline. With slaves taking refuge in the Seminole territory, the tension escalated with the U.S. believing that the Seminole should give the, quote, rightful property, unquote, back to the slave owners. As the escalation started to increase, the size of the attacks grew. President James Monroe authorized Andrew Jackson to head into the Spanish territory and reprimand the Seminoles. This authorization would start the First Seminole War. Andrew Jackson's strategic history was one of offense, and not defense. Regardless if you agree with how Andrew Jackson treated Native Americans, he was a great strategist. I understand that Jackson committed some heinous crimes, and recognizing his talent as a military leader doesn't mean I endorse his behavior. Still, Andrew Jackson's aggressive response caused Spain to sell Florida at a relatively low price to the United States. Native Americans received no compensation for the new state, and the United States agreed to pay the $5 million in damage done by American citizens who rebelled against Spain. When Andrew Jackson first entered Florida, he burned villages, captured and executed two British citizens, and took over Spanish settlements in St. Mark's and Pensacola. During the first 10 years under U.S. control, the Seminoles saw more of their territory taken away. The 1823 Treaty of Moultrie Creek gave the United States another 28 million acres, while Native Americans kept only 4 million. To add insult to injury, the United States forced the Seminole Reservation to be in the center of Florida, so communication between the Spanish and the Seminoles would be limited. Two years later, President Monroe insisted on a federal policy to move all Native Americans west of the Mississippi River. It would be another five years, when Andrew Jackson became president, that Congress would pass the Indian Removal Act of 1830. It was a close vote, of 103 to 97, with one of the strongest representatives opposed to the act being Davy Crockett. This act forced over 100,000 Native Americans to abandon their homes and relocate to what the U.S. considered Indian Territory in modern-day Oklahoma. Estimates of up to 25% of Native Americans died during the trip due to disease, starvation, and weather. This act is known today as the Trail of Tears. Although some Native American tribes peacefully made a move, the Southern tribes, known as the Five Civilized Tribes, included the Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, Cherokee, and the Creeks, refused to move. They did not want to give up their farmland and resources for an unknown territory out west. In 1832, the Treaty of Payne's Landing was signed between the United States and multiple Seminole leaders. The treaty agreed to allow seven chiefs to visit the new land out west. If the chiefs were content with the location and the resources, the Seminoles would migrate west within three years. The treaty was signed at Fort Gibson. Some of the chiefs claimed that U.S. representatives threatened that they would not be allowed to leave the fort if they did not sign the document. Many Seminoles, including some of the chiefs, renounced the treaty. But it was too late. The treaty was signed, 
and the U.S. was prepared to forcefully remove the Seminoles within three years if they did not move peacefully. Among the Red Sticks who migrated south was a man named Osceola. Born in 1804, his father was an Englishman, William Powell, and his mother, Polly Coppinger, was Creek. After the U.S. engagement with Creeks, he migrated south, and after the First Seminole War, Osceola had rose to an important leader among the Seminoles and led an armed resistance against the forced migration. Although he wasn't a chief, his followers were inspired by his ideologies, which he learned from Tecumseh. As the resistance started to grow, the United States sent a small army to stop the Seminoles' insurgents and enforce order. This group consisted of eight officers, 98 enlisted, an interpreter, an artillery piece, and a supply wagon. Major Francis Dade led the party. The coalition left Fort Brook, which is in present-day Tampa, and headed on a 100-mile journey to Fort King on a resupply mission. On December 23, 1835, they were attacked by 180 Seminole warriors. Nearly all the soldiers were massacred during this attack, including Dade. Three soldiers survived the initial attack. Private Edward de Courcy hid under a pile of bodies and escaped. He was hunted down by a single Seminole and killed. Private Ransom Clark made it back to Fort Brook, and the third was Louis Pancheco. Clark provided the only account of this attack. Quote, it was 8 o'clock. Suddenly I heard a rifle shot in the direction of the advance guard and this was immediately followed by a musket shot from that quarter. I had not time to think of the meaning of these shots before a volley, as if from a thousand rifles, was poured in upon us from the front and all along our left flank. We were surrounded by about 900 Indians and 100 Negroes who had run away from their master's plantations and joined themselves to the savages. With demonic yells and shouts, they commenced a brisk and galling fire upon us. A moment before we were surprised, Major Dade said to us, We have now got through all danger. Keep up good heart, and when we get to Fort King, I'll give you three days for Christmas. At the first fire, one-third of the detachment and Major Dade and Captain Fraser were killed. Lieutenant Mudge mortally wounded. I looked around me and it seemed as if I was the only one left standing on the right wing. The first fire of the Indians was the most destructive, seemingly killing or disabling one half our men. Lieutenant Basinger, who had charge of the cannon and the rear guard, then came up, and the piece was brought to bear upon the enemy. He fired five or six rounds of canister from the cannon. This appeared to frighten the Indians, and they retreated over a little hill to our left. Some of us went forward to gather the cartridge boxes from the dead and to assist the wounded. I had seen Major Dade fall to the ground by the first volley, and his horse dashed into the midst of the enemy. While gathering the cartridges, I saw Lieutenant Mudge, sitting with his back reclining against a tree, his head fallen and evidently dying. I spoke to him, but he did not answer. We immediately then began to fell trees and erect a little triangular breastwork. We had barely raised it knee-high when we again saw the Indians advancing in great numbers 
over the hill to our left. They came on like devils, yelling and whooping in such a manner that the reports of the rifles were scarcely perceptible. They came on boldly, till within a long musket shot when they spread themselves from tree to tree to surround us. About eleven o'clock, a ball from the enemy struck my right leg above the knee and broke it, and I fell to the ground. I then commenced crawling towards the little breastwork, and while on my way, I saw an Indian, a few rods off, attentively observing me. I drew up my rifle as well as I could to shoot him, but he is too quick for me in my then situation, discharged his piece first at me, and his ball passed through and broke my right arm between the elbow and shoulder. I then continued crawling on my left hand and knee to the breastwork, and in attempting to get over it, I received two other shots in rapid succession. One in my right shoulder that passed into my breast, and another of a charge of buckshot that entered and lodged against my breastbone. Our men were by degrees all cut down. The battle lasted until about four in the afternoon, and I was about the last one who handled a gun, while lying on my side. At the close, I received a shot in my right shoulder, which passed into my lungs. The blood gushed out of my mouth in a stream, and dropping my musket, I rolled over on my face. Lieutenant Bassinger was the only officer left alive, and he severely wounded. He told me as the Indians approached to feign myself dead. I looked through the logs and saw the savages approaching in great numbers. Then, they retired in a body in the direction from whence they came. I lay in this situation until about nine o'clock at night, when on emerging from the breastwork I put my hand upon my body of a soldier who I found was still alive. I roused him up, though he was badly wounded, and together we commenced crawling toward Fort Brooke, then a distance of 65 miles. We knew it was nearest to go to Fort King, but we had seen the enemy retreat in that direction. This soldier's name was de Courcy. We got along quite well until the next day, when we met an Indian on horseback with a rifle, coming up the road. Our only chance was to separate. We did so. I took the right, and he took the left of the road. The Indian pursued him. I had escaped into a clump of thick bushes and thus eluded him. Shortly afterwards, I heard a rifle shot, and a little after, another. After a while, I saw the Indian pass, looking for me. When he passed on, I followed up the trail of de Courcy and found his mutilated body. I then resumed my way toward the fort alone. I traveled five days and nights without food, many wounds festering and becoming inflamed to a degree that rendered my agony excruciating. On the fifth day, I arrived within three quarters of a mile of the fort. From the loss of blood, hunger, and exhaustion, I sank upon the ground to die. I was discovered in this situation a short time afterwards by a friendly squaw who assisted me to the fort. Unquote. This massacre was the start of the Second Seminole War. Less than a month after Dade's ambush, the Marines from the U.S. Frigate Constellation and the U.S. Sloop St. Louis arrived at Fort Brooke to reinforce the fort against an expected Native American attack. Thanks for listening. Next week, 
Join us as we start to discuss Archibald Henderson and his Marines' involvement in the American Indian War. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's suggestion is Six Frigates, The Epic History of the Founding of the U.S. Navy by E.N.W. Toll. This book is a remarkable historical account of the original six frigates, authorized by Congress to be built with the Naval Act of 1794. We've covered each of these frigates during earlier episodes of the podcast, but this book dives into details that we didn't cover. It is well-researched and gets into the politics, challenges, and victories of the United States and early Navy and Marine Corps encounters in conflicts such as the Quasi-War, Tripoli, and the War of 1812. This is an excellent read for anyone interested in U.S. maritime history. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. History of the Marine Corps is now on Patreon. Visit the link in the description to visit our page. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.